This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello. And a very happy Friday afternoon to you. Today, taking a look at the wool market, the last one for the year. We'll go through the details with Danny Burkett just before the news at one. And it has ended on a high. Uh, Both the Eastern Market Indicator and the Western Market Indicators are up. And that's good news because there were quite a few bales on offer uh, this week. So there was a little bit of anxiety, I guess, in the lead up to it. But it has done very well. And now there's going to be, I think it's a three or four week break. Anyway, Danny will go through the details for you just before the news at one o'clock today. And also, could farmed crocodiles in northern Australia soon be enjoying a plant-based diet? We are trying to work on a a vegetable protein-based diet. The American alligator and Nile crocodile have been soybean-based and corn-based for years, similar to dog uh, diets. We'll look into that shortly. Before news headlines at half past 12, it is six past 12. You're on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. The state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has posted another staggering end-of-year profit, recording a $353 million surplus, most of which will be invested back into the network. The co-op's annual report released this morning shows record shipping volumes from last year's massive crop is largely responsible for this impressive balance sheet. Having said that, though, it is not quite as good as the 2022 financial year, which delivered a $490 million surplus, driven mostly by high grain prices following the start of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. The CBH Group's CEO, Ben McNamara, says this year's result is an overall reflection of the entire WA industry. That starts from uh, everyone assisting growers, the growers themselves, who continue to prove uh, their ability to enhance production all the way through to our frontline teams, our central teams, and also critically our suppliers who have helped us move grain from our country sites all the way through our four ports. So it's been um, a pretty remarkable and unprecedented year in the history of CBH, one that we haven't seen in, uh, in our 90 years. Yeah, extraordinary. $170 million of marketing and trade surplus is going to be paid to the company for network investments. This is the only, the second time that you've done this. Is it going to be part of the co-op's practice ongoing from now on? No, it's not our intention for our marketing and trading business to fund the network uh, expenditure. Um, So these last couple of years have been unprecedented. And I think when we look at uh, grain margins today, they're very different to what they were last year. And so the grain markets are very much uh, looking more like what they have uh, historically. What we did do is make an assessment on where the greatest uh, need for uh, for those funds were and what the most tax-effective outcome was for the grain growers of Western Australia. And so the decision made by our board uh, in conjunction with our executive team was the greatest requirement was to spend it on our network And that is so that uh, we can continue to handle these much larger crops. And you would have seen that uh, we've accelerated our capital expenditure program 
so that we can meet our strategic objectives, which we've highlighted and discussed previously on this program. Yeah. What will um, this money, this $170 million, be used for specifically? Uh, so this will go into uh, a number of different programs. But if we if we look at a, a capital program for FY23, we spent just in excess of $570 million. Around about $70 million of that went into maintenance. So this is our operating cost. Historically, we'd spend around 50. So this is at an accelerated level. The reason for that is the throughput through the supply chain. So our kit is working harder and therefore we've spent money on maintaining it. Around 60 million went into temporary storage to be able to receive um, this massive crop of 22.9 million tonnes and that created around about 2.3 million tonnes of storage. We also spent $100 million on down payments for the rolling stock acquisition. So uh, for your listeners, uh, we're doubling the size of our fleet. That'll see us buying both narrow and standard gauge locomotives and adding 650 wagons to our fleet. So that leaves around about 340, um, and that was pretty much spent uh, in two portions, uh, 170 on sustaining capital. So this is replenishing the useful life of our existing infrastructure. So uh, re-roofing some of our annexes, as an example, we've done that in locations like Yuna, Cascades, Wagen, Muckambudin this year. And then we've also done a significant amount of work at our Geraldton Port as well. On the expansion side, which is the other 170 million, uh, this looks at where we're adding storage capacity and improving our ability to get grain out of the supply chain. So we've added storage at Nangaloo, uh, Nibing, um, Latham is another example, and then we're making good progress on our rail projects. So sidings at Brookton, which is complete, the siding down at Broom Hill is now complete, and we're uh, working through the construction of the loading infrastructure. So. That's where the funding's going. As we look forward, the capital is, is necessary to continue to meet our targets of being able to get 3 million tonnes out of the supply chain per month in those peak shipping months. And so uh, we'll continue to work on those projects to achieve those objectives. This is the Country Hour. It's 11 past 12. And today, CEO of the CBH Group, Ben McNamara, is just going through the co-op's annual report, which has delivered a $353 million surplus. He's just detailed how a lot of that money is being spent and says growers will eventually see the rewards of these investments. I think uh, it takes time and, and the answer will be yes. So if we look at our strategic objectives, we've got horizons. The first horizon seeks to be able to have 2 million tonnes of peak shipping uh, capacity in the front half of the year. Pleasingly, in December, we did 2.2 and this is last year. And in the front part of this year, we did about 1.9 million tonnes uh, per month on average. This is in the front part of the year. Uh, so critically, if we can lift that supply chain capacity, what that means is we can get the benefit of passing um, the full value of international market prices back to the grain growers of Western Australia. So uh, I think it's important that we continue to invest in the supply chain to realise the benefits of WA growers, and that's both today but also future generations of growers as well. These massive profits are based on two um, record-breaking seasons. This coming year and this current season of 2023-2024 records will be much harder to come by. We're looking at a little over half of last year's record total sitting at about 12 million tonnes at the moment. 
Will the smaller crop impact your 2033 investment strategy? No, I think what we understand is the vagaries of uh, of agriculture. So you have great seasons like we've had over the last two. You'll definitely see uh, lower seasons like we're experiencing this year, but that is agriculture. And so our plan takes into consideration the volatility in crop production. But what's very clear is, yeah, the crop production this year is going to impact our results, just like our members. They will be significantly impacted as well. And so What's important is to maintain good cost management throughout the business and certainly that's what all of our leaders uh, throughout the business are, are doing. From a capital perspective, years like this actually provide good opportunities to get access to critical infrastructure and this year we'll continue to, uh, to focus on two sides, sustaining our existing assets and growing the network to meet the growing task. One thing that, that I hear from many of our members when I speak to them is their confidence in the ability to continue to grow large crops. Uh, they continue to get better at it. Uh, they're using better uh, seed technology and they're using better equipment, which is really pleasing for the industry. In tough years like this one, I'm sure that growers would like to share in, in the profits of, of good years previously. Is the co-op going to pay any money back to growers in rebates or perhaps look at reducing supply chain these in the near future? No, we'll ensure that we go back to our purpose to ensure that we can sustainably create and return value for WA growers. And so we will continue to focus on investing in the supply chain to ensure that it does exactly that. Uh, so from an operations perspective, um, we see the greatest requirement is to reinvest those surpluses back into the network. From a marketing and trading perspective, the last two years, have been quite remarkable. We've seen the conflict in um, Ukraine and Russia, uh, which has elevated grain, uh, grain prices and added significant volatility. And grain is not the only commodity that's experienced this. So we, we are now seeing grain margins back to historical levels. But what that means is as we move forward, we can continue to assess uh, the necessity of whether we pay loyalty payments as opposed to rebates, pay loyalty payments out of marketing and trading, and that's something that uh, we get to consider on an annual basis. How much is the path to 2033 investment worth in, in total? So um, it's around about 400, in excess of $400 million per year. So across the 10-year window, you're looking at in excess of $4 billion. That is extraordinary figures, Ben. It certainly is, but I think as many of your listeners would be well and truly aware of is uh, the impact of not having supply chain capacity, as we saw this at beginning of uh, this calendar year, you saw a very large delta between Western Australian grain prices and international markets. And that was driven largely by the fact that the crop size uh, exceeded the supply chain capacity. And so what's important here is that we have the flexibility and agility to meet the task, and that requires us to spend capital on the network. We'll do that in a financially responsible manner, and uh, we understand the vagaries of, of agriculture, and we'll continue to look at our plans on an annual basis, as you would expect, and as our members do in their own businesses. Thank you so much for joining us on the Country Hour today and also this year, the 2023, and we'll look forward to a, a profitable season next year for 2024. Merry Christmas, Ben. Yeah. Let me take the opportunity to wish your listeners and the Grain Growers of Western Australia a very uh, happy uh, holiday period and all the very best and stay safe uh, throughout that period. 
Thanks very much. That is the CBH Group's CEO, Ben McNamara, and he was speaking to Lucinda Jose. It is 16 past 12. Hi, it's Romaina Nicoletti. I'm a farmer out at Bonnie Rock and you are listening to The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on the ABC. It's some other grains news today. WA researchers are trying to find a way to allow people with celiac disease and other gluten intolerances to safely drink beer. Edith Cowan University is working with Food Standards Australia and New Zealand to look into the gluten content in a range of beers made with different ingredients. Professor Michelle Colgrave led the study and says there is a fair bit of work to do before growers can simply grow the right barley varieties. There's a population or about 1% of our population who are actually um, have an immune reaction to gluten when they consume products that contain gluten, which comes from either wheat, barley or rye, that they have this adverse reaction resulting in inflammatory conditions and other challenges within their body. If you have a product like beer, which is brewed typically using barley and sometimes wheat, then those products won't be suitable for those consumers, as well as those who also suffer from gluten intolerance, which is a slightly different condition. But there are a number of products that are on the market that claim to be reduced gluten or low in gluten or even gluten-free. And the challenge with those is that they have used different types of technology, whether it be filtration or the use of additives, in an attempt to reduce the gluten content to a safe level. The tests they use don't always pick up the residual gluten that's present. So some beers are misleading? The beers as labelled could be considered misleading to the consumers. And it's not necessarily because the people marketing those intentionally trying to dupe the consumer. It's just that they don't have a fit for purpose test to um, monitor the level of gluten within those products. Is there a particular variety of barley that is an exception? So I have a second role, which is at uh, CSIRO. And at CSIRO, we developed a, a barley variety through traditional breeding methodologies that actually incorporates a whole suite of different gluten mutants. And they, when I say mutants, it's varieties of barley that don't contain individual gluten proteins. And when we combine those together, we ended up with a breeding line or a barley variety that is essentially gluten-free as an ingredient rather than trying to remove the gluten after you've made the beer. Is this available for growers in Australia at the moment? While we could see it growing in paddocks, what we've, uh, we have a challenge here in Australia in that anything that contains wheat, barley or rye is considered gluten-containing. And so that means that you can't label a product gluten-free even if it um, contains a gluten-free barley. And that's just the, the regulations at the moment. So while we could grow it here, unfortunately we don't have a market because we can't market this product as gluten-free. What needs to be done then? How, how can you get past that? So the way that we have developed our methods is to support safety assessments around different food types so that we can show that in fact a gluten-free barley is truly gluten-free. Those types of methodologies that can then help um, the regulators to make decisions about the safety of products. Is it grown anywhere in the world, Kabari barley? We have grown it um, here in Australia and we did uh, quite a lot of uh, that in order to uh, develop it as a product. And it's also being grown in Europe. They have different regulations around the labelling of these products and similarly in North America. If we if we had harmonisation, I guess, across 
uh, the different regulatory um, agencies, it would open up avenues for growing this specific uh, barley variety for celiac and gluten intolerant consumers. Okay, so that's barley. Are there any other non-gluten grains, though, that can be used to make beer? Absolutely, there are. And there's some great examples, actually, of um, Australian innovation in this space. We've got a range of different um, pseudo-cereals, things like teff and millet that have been used as as grains that are gluten-free by nature. There are other grains that we are also investigating, like oats. So oats is highly similar to barley and wheat, except that the, um, the gluten content is far lower and it contains less toxic proteins within it. There is a range of, I guess, options that are available, but we need to have all those right um, standards around how we measure the levels of these proteins. And we also have to make sure that we don't get accidental contamination. So we don't want to see, for instance, a traditional barley going into a gluten-free barley in the field or in transport or even in brewing or manufacture. So we need to make sure that we keep those other grains that do contain gluten out. Could this change the overall taste of the beer? So there is a unique taste, I guess, to each different cereal grain that you use and the, and also because of the malting practice that we use and also, I guess, due to the hops and the other inclusions within the product. But overall, uh, the Kabari barley doesn't taste overly different, but it does have some different characteristics in terms of the head retention that you might see on your beer as you've poured it from the tap. Professor of Food and Agriculture, Michelle Colgrave from Edith Cowan University, and she was speaking to Kate Forrester. 22 past 12, this is the Country Hour. An update from the newsroom, not far away at half past 12, and then, of course, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, checking conditions around the state. Very hot in northern parts of Western Australia, and it looks like there could be a little bit of rain on the way just along the south coast areas. Uh, Angeline Prasad along shortly and she'll go through those details for you. 22 past 12. First up though, it is an iconic industry of Northern Australia that contributes more than $100 million to the economy. But recently, crocodile farming has come under the microscope with the federal government reviewing its industry's code of practice. Against the backdrop of increased scrutiny, AgriFutures held a webinar this week about what the industry is doing to guarantee its future, including feeding crocs more than just meat. Max Rowley has the details. It's big business in Northern Australia, producing saltwater crocodile skins for luxury fashion retailers like Louis Vuitton. The primary market uh, is the high-end fashion houses of Europe um, to produce luxury handbags and shoes and such. And I think based on the last statistics, Australia is producing 8% of, uh, of the world crocodilian skins. That's Sally Isberg, a crocodile husbandry expert and Darwin-based consultant for the Territory's croc farming industry. And she's been looking at how the sector can thrive into the future as changing fashions shift market demands. The current demand is for uh, smaller belly skins, which are around 25 to 35 centimetres in belly width. But in the past, the demand was for much larger skins when larger style handbags were in fashion. This week, she launched the industry's first research and development plan with AgriFutures, which looks at everything from new markets and value adding 
to feeding crocs a vegetarian diet. We are trying to work on a vegetable protein-based diet. The American alligator and Nile crocodile have been soybean-based and corn-based for years, similar to dog diets. But our salties are the divas of the crocodile world and are not quite as accepting of, of anything that we've presented to them with, with, with complete reliability at this stage. So maybe no vegan salties yet. But sustainability seems to be a key focus for the industry. So in the development of this RDNE plan, we first sent a survey out to uh, you know, 56 industry members, including downstream users of the product, so tanneries, manufacturers, cosmetic companies. So we could get a really good understanding of what the challenges the industry faces at all levels of the supply chain. The highest ranking priority from the survey was environmental sustainability and social licence. And that's likely because croc farming has come under fire from animal welfare groups. And in July, the federal government announced a review into the industry's code of practice, which oversees everything from collecting eggs or catching wild crocs to breeding them in captivity and how the apex predators are killed. Here's Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek speaking at the time. It is a growing industry. We have more science. We've got new techniques. It's time to update the code of practice. But Sally Isberg says she welcomes the review. Uh, the fact that we have a code of practice for the crocodile industry, which is actually currently in the process of being reviewed, is considered a major strength as it shows our commitment to improving crocodile welfare. The industry already shows significant environmental sustainability from the perspective of the sustainable use program and, the, and the, in the wild egg harvest and the strong, healthy wild populations that we have in northern waterways. On farm, however, it was considered really important that we understand the, the businesses from a life cycle analysis perspective, as well as making continual reductions in water and energy use, as well as carbon emissions. The industry is also keen to talk up its benefits for remote Indigenous communities and ranger groups, supporting local jobs through egg collection. One thing that the industry is trying to do is really extending those benefits outside of just a royalty payment for eggs. So there are satellite farms being set up on communities, which therefore means that the landowners are going out to collect the eggs, but then the eggs are being incubated on country and then the animals are being raised on country. And that then provides, you know, employment opportunities, training opportunities, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, those kind of things. So, again, there's a real social element to that which, which further contributes to our social licence. And as I said, I'm really proud to be a part of this industry. Looking ahead, Sally Isberg says the industry is also trying to develop new byproducts. To better utilise that whole tip-to-tail philosophy of animal use was also seen as a high priority, particularly around the beauty and, and medicinal industries. So, uh, you know, fat and, uh, and blood perhaps in, in the Chinese medicinal market and things like that. The other priority identified was the development of accredited training programs uh, for industry participants so that the whole industry can enhance their capacity. And then the final priority is to ensure that we have a resilient and capable industry. 89% of our survey respondents were really supportive of developing a national industry peak body. So I think that's really encouraging and we look forward to investigating that a little bit further. Croc consultant Sally Isberg. She was a speaker at this week's AgriFutures webinar looking at the future of croc farming in Australia.
28 past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and, of course, on the ABC Listen app. It is time for an update from the newsroom with Ali Colvin. Thanks, Belinda. The President of the European Council says opening membership talks with Ukraine emphasises the strength of the European Union. The bloc made the decision to commence talks at a summit in Brussels. Ukraine's President, Volodymyr Zelensky, says it's a victory for his country and for Europe. The United Nations says the consequences of the conflict in Gaza will be disproportionately borne by women and girls for generations. The UN says pregnant women, young children, older people and those with disabilities are at higher risk of disease, malnutrition and death. It says the interruption to housing, school and health care will destroy the future of young girls in Gaza, which it describes as already fragile. Stephen Miles has been officially endorsed as Queensland's new Premier at a meeting of the state's Labor caucus. He's Queensland's 40th Premier and takes over from, over from long-serving leader Anastasia Palaszczuk, who announced her surprise resignation last Sunday. Thanks, Belinda. More news at one. Ali, thank you so much for that update. It is 29 past 12. Between now and the news at one, Danny Burkett will be along just before one. He'll go through the wool market details for you. And if you were selling wool this week, you'd be pretty happy, I think. The prices were up here in the West and in the East. And shortly, we'll have a look at artificial intelligence and how... It is being used in a number of different ways in sort of rural and regional parts of Australia. We'll look particularly at how it's being used to look out for fire. We'll get to that shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, it is time to head off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. And hello. Let's start in the Southwest Land Division. Hi there, Belinda. Yes, a warm to hot day across much of the Southwest Land Division today. It's going to be a dry, mostly sunny day. Uh, temperatures are generally going to be in the low to mid 30s, getting into the high 30s to low 40s across uh, the northern parts of the Central Reed Belt and the Central West today. And that's all due to a, a West Coast draft developing. We've got a ridge of high pressure to the south of the state. So a combination of those two patterns are causing those uh, very warm conditions. A bit mild on the south coast uh, today. Now, the weekend is interesting. The trough does uh, move inland, uh, but we do have an upper trough uh, trailing uh, east with it as well. So uh, expecting some, some showers and thunderstorms across uh, parts of the southwest land division. Most likely it's going to start tomorrow evening. So uh, the southern parts of um, the uh, central west, uh, the the lower west, um, uh, much of the central reed belt and uh, areas north of Katanning in the in the in the Great Southern might see a little bit of rainfall. Not much tomorrow. It's going to be fairly sporadic tomorrow. Generally, rainfall through inland parts of the Southwest Land Division um, may get up to two millimeters. Um, Central West, it's it's going to be very sporadic. So some areas might see a little bit of rainfall, maybe a millimeter or two millimeters. So not much tomorrow. That rainfall might extend into the Esperance region as well um, later tomorrow night. So the rainfall, if it does occur, it's most likely going to be tomorrow night. Now on Sunday, the trough does amplify as it slides further inland. So expecting a little bit more rainfall on early Sunday uh, into into the remainder of Sunday as that uh, uh, sort of uh, rain band starts to contract inland. So um, 
the southern parts of the central weed belt, the areas north of uh, Katanning in the Great Southern and the Aspirins region, including Central West, may see a little bit more rainfall, about 4 to 8 millimetres, but some areas may see 10 millimetres if the thunderstorms happen in the right place. Um, Central West may see a little bit of rainfall, generally in the around the 4 to 5 millimetres as well. So this uh, the, the Sunday is going to be sort of the wetter day for inland parts of the Southwest Land Division. The rain does clear very quickly into Monday. So apart from that uh, little bit of rain on Sunday, uh, it might dry out again until probably um, later next week, mid to late week, six may uh, see some dry thunderstorms. So thunder, thunderstorms that happen over the weekend, they're not going to be dry. There is going to be rainfall. But as always, the landscape is quite dry. There is not much soil moisture around, so there will be lightning strikes, so that bushfire risk is is very real this weekend as well. And then how are conditions moving into northern and eastern parts of the state, Ange? We've got a heat wave gripping uh, the northern and eastern parts of the state. Uh, we've got an extreme heat wave warning uh, for the Kimberley Sphere across the rest. Um, so it's... Uh, it's uh, very scorching temperatures. We've got temperatures uh, hitting the low to mid 40s during the daytime and overnight minimum. Some places last night didn't dip below 30 degrees. So very oppressive conditions uh, across the north and eastern parts of the state. Um, so that unfortunately is likely to continue into next week, including the weekend period. Might see very isolated uh, shower or thunderstorm activity across the far eastern parts of the Kimberley today and maybe over the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley tomorrow. It's still going to be fairly isolated. Some of that rainfall might extend into the um, into the interior, but it's going to be very patchy. Um, with that uh, cloud bend moving east across the southern parts uh, going into Monday, we have got a firm ridge of high pressure that is going to push across uh, southern parts of the state. So that will contract the heat wave uh, conditions out of the the central eastern parts of the state, so through the gold fields and south interior. But the northern parts of the state will continue to experience, especially through the Kimberley heat wave conditions into next week. And then can you just recap those warnings for today, Ange? Yes. So as mentioned before, there is a heat wave warning out uh, for parts of the state. So an extreme heat wave warning is current for the Kimberley, severe heat wave warning for goldfields, north interior and south interior districts. Apart from that, we have got a fire weather warning uh, for the um, Midwest and uh, Midwest coast and Midwest inland. And marine warnings, uh, we have uh, got a strong warning for the Geraldton coast just for today. Tomorrow, it'll extend to the Lanslin, Perth Coast, Bunbury, Libyan and Eucla Coasts. Thank you so much for going through those details. And 25 to 1 on the country hour. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been no rain whatsoever, well, over five millimetres, right across the entire state. ABC Radio, Fire Ban Information. And because of extreme fire danger today, there is a total fire ban for parts of the Midwest. It's for the local council areas of Chapman Valley, Greater Geraldton, 
Northampton. And due to a total fire ban, you must not have any activity that could start a fire. And that includes having any outdoor fires, including using solid fuel barbecues, carrying out hot work like grinding, welding and gas gas cutting, nor go off-road driving in a four-wheel drive on a quad bike or a motorbike. It is your responsibility to check with your local government if there's also a vehicle movement ban imposed. If so, that means you can't use off-road vehicles, even for agriculture or industry. There's a map of the affected area at the Emergency WA website and more about the do's and the don'ts during a total fire ban at the DFES site. Just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for parts of the Midwest. 23 to 1. Well, when it comes to minimising the impact of bushfire, early detection and action is invaluable. So much so that researchers at Murdoch University are training artificial intelligence to be on the lookout for fire. Andre D'Souza is the Director of Operations at the Harry Butler Institute. He says they'll use photographs and thermal data to train the AI. So the decision was made to collect data using a drone. The reason we selected a drone uh, to collect these photographs, both regular images as well as thermal images, was to replicate uh, some sort of height. So to replicate a potential tower or a piece of infrastructure that's tall enough where these cameras could eventually be placed uh, and see out to the horizon in terms of being able to detect smoke off in the distance. So the uh, technique we will use is we'll use a drone um, to put it up to the height, uh, to to put it up to a height where we can collect uh, images and thermal data um, at a height that might replicate some sort of infrastructure later on down the track. Does that mean you're going to be chasing fires? Uh, Yes, we absolutely will. Uh, We'll be chasing fires, but fires that are deliberately lit. So we'll be using prescribed burns, not um, fires that are lit by firebugs, which is increasingly common these days, unfortunately. But we'll be using prescribed burns and prescribed burns give us uh, the perfect opportunity to be present uh, at the point of ignition. And so therefore to be uh, perfectly positioned for when the smoke first starts to come through. And that's the point we want to be able to detect eventually. Yeah. How early are you thinking the AI will be able to detect fire? So AI at the moment and AI is increasingly getting better and better, so fewer images required, a lot quicker and a lot better in terms of models being trained and being trained upon existing models, etc. as well. However, we just don't know how quick uh, or how quick the AI will be in being able to recognise the smoke uh, uh, or or, uh, signs of smoke coming through. That's part of the research project. For us, though, what we would like to do is uh, continue to collect data Uh, and continue to train and refine the model till it gets to a point where um, the detection is almost immediate, uh, if you will. So uh, smoke starts to form, AI camera takes an image uh, and it detects the smoke, sends off a notification uh, and gives the responders an opportunity to respond within, uh, hopefully within seconds of uh, smoke starting. Big sky, blue sky pictures, how are you envisaging that this work might be used in a real-life application in the future? 
for me, I think this is the start of a, 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 a bunch of different projects that we could be in and we'd be interested to be involved with. AI-based cameras could be part of the broader surveillance system for bushfires. But what we're really hoping to do is perhaps create a mesh of sensors. So that's commonly referred to as the Internet of Things or IoT. Uh, so IoT devices that include weather monitoring, uh, so that's your soil moisture, humidity, temperature conditions, uh, and then to create a mesh of data that overlays, for example, fuel loads um, that might be supported by satellite imagery, for example, and really create uh, a dashboard of, of data um, that has AI-based modelling that can really offer the decision makers an opportunity to understand those potential hotspots, either based on weather conditions or based on sort of, you know, lightning strikes, for example, uh, integrating that into the data as well and really give decision makers an opportunity to focus in on those high priority areas that allow them to prepare their resources ahead of time or before a fire actually begins. Yeah, it's an opportunity to, to create something that's more holistic in terms of using accessible data, new data sources, and uh, weaving it into a mesh as a decision-making tool. Director of Operations at the Harry Butler Institute, Andre D'Souza, talking to Lucinda Jose about the work the university is doing using artificial intelligence to detect bushfire. And he's working on the project as part of a PhD candidacy. Well, staying with artificial intelligence in rural Australia... You know that weeds are costing farmers around $5.3 billion a year. Well, scientists from the CSIRO and the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions are hoping they'll reduce that cost with a new AI weed identification app. Weed Scan was launched on Tuesday to help farmers, land councils and people across Australia manage weeds simply by snapping a picture. Dr. Alexander Schmidt-Laboon is a senior research scientist at CSIRO and says weed scan is a game changer. The primary win for farmers will hopefully be that if they're faced with something that they can't recognise, for example, because it's a weed that's newly introduced into their area that they've never seen before, the AI model in the app might help them figure out what it is. And then if they tap on the identification suggestion, the pre-species profile is displayed that has got links to further information there. First of all, it's, it's got a description and example images that they can compare against to see if the identification suggestion is correct. And then if it is, they find links there to, to additional information on management and uh, on you know how problematic this suite might be. Can you talk me through how the app works? The primary screen that you'll mostly deal with when you're walking up to a weed and you want to figure out what it is, is the identification interface. A bit like a, like a camera app on your phone, so you're basically seeing what your camera eye currently sees. It constantly sends the frames that the camera sees to the AI model that's embedded in the app. And so you'll get up to three different identification suggestions being displayed at the bottom of the screen. And they're constantly updating as you move the phone around the the weed, you look at leaves, you look at a rosette, you look at flowers or something like that, you see suggestions, you can tap on any of those suggestions. When you do that, the species profile pops up where you can scroll down, you might click a link to a state profile for that weed, or you might look at photos, for example, to compare if the identification suggestion is correct. 
And back in the camera interface, there's a big round button at the bottom. And if you point it at a weed and you press the button, it creates an, a record or at least a draft record at first with that identification suggestion that was at the top and the photo and the coordinates where you currently are. And if you finalize that record, it ends up in the central database. You can also, by the way, submit records anonymously and you can flag records as not for the public so that only the weed officer will see that, but nobody else. Now, Alexander, I've downloaded the app myself and I was flicking through the full list of weeds and there are so many. There's so many example images on there. How many are there altogether? Uh, so the AI model has got 488 so-called classes, so taxa in it. Um, of those, I think about 450 of those are weeds and the remainder are native lookalikes that, uh, you know, we needed to train the AI to recognize some native species too that are very similar to the weeds so it doesn't misidentify them as this very similar looking weed. Of the approximately 450 weeds, we had a priority list of, I think, about 335 five or so priority weeds of which we got most of them in there. I find the app pretty easy to navigate but then I think of someone like my dad who is a farmer. I must admit he's not the most technologically advanced person Mm. in the world. Is he going to be able to navigate this? There are obviously more bells and whistles to this app than the ones that I just uh, talked about, but that's the core function. And I think anybody who's, you know, reasonably comfortable with, you know, using a, a mobile phone at the moment will find that at least very easy. You know, it, again, it's it, the camera interface that does the identification suggestion is very, very similar to any camera function where you just point at somebody and take a photo of them in a restaurant or something like that, except that it does the identification suggestions at the bottom. So I'm, I'm optimistic that people will generally find that at least very easy to use. The app has been created by CSIRO and the Centre for Invasive Species Solution, the New South Wales Department of Industries. There was also the South Australian Government, the Queensland and the Victorian Government. There's no mention of WA though. Does that mean we can still use it here? Can it be downloaded? Yeah, so this is merely an artifact of the fact that the uh, Western Australian government wasn't part of the project right from the beginning. So when we collated all the priority lists of weeds that people really wanted to have in there, uh, Western Australia wasn't yet part of the project. But of course, there's enormous number of uh, weeds that are important in South Australia, Northern Territory, New South Wales that are still also important in Western Australia. You know, we have links to Western Australian profiles in there and all that information. So it will still be useful to Western Australia and can definitely be used in Western Australia. Dr Alexander schmidt Laboon from CSIRO speaking to Kate Forrester. And WeedScan can be downloaded from the App Store or on Google Play and it can also be accessed on the website. So just do a search for WeedScan online. 13 minutes to one. Danny Burkett along shortly for the last Woolmarket report of this year. That's just before the news at one. Now, are you having crayfish this Christmas? Is that on the menu at your place? Are you good at cooking it? How do you go about it? Western rock lobsters, they're pretty easy to be found these days along the WA coast. And you can buy them from fishers through the back of the boat sales scheme that you would have heard about. Lobster can be a delicious addition to your Christmas lunch table. And cooking it doesn't have to be very complicated. The key is to cook it as fast as you can. 
Justin Piratina. Hello. Hey, how are you going, Joe? Good. What are we going to do? I think we're going to make some um, sweet chilli and honey medallions out of the cray tail. So, so you get this, you bend the tail over like that, and you turn. But just be careful with your hands, because these will spike you. So now I, I like to use just the, the smallest crays possible, like just size to do this, only because they cook a lot quicker. Okay. The bigger the cray, the longer you've got you've to cook it. Okay. So then, you see the tail? It's got all the knuckle joints in it. Yeah, these are little sections. Yeah, in the yeah. sections. So all you're doing mm -hmm. is cutting in between them. So you cut the first bit off, like that, through the shell, and then there you go, into that knuckle, just like that. Okay. So the small little, like that, and that just goes down, like that, and the last one, mm -hmm. like that. Okay. So, so we're just going to get that, put that in here. So you're not taking the meat out nope. of those little shell nope, circles? No, nope, nope. nope. we'll leave that like that. Right up. So we'll sit that there. We'll get a lemon. You can put some sweet chilli sauce oh, in there. Righto, how much? Oh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, give it all. Enough? Yeah, we're right. Right, now. Just a little bit of oil, you don't need much because that, that's got that on it. Okay. <laughs> oh, just, that's right, just tip it. You only want, you only want you a sure? little time. Yeah. Just a splash? Yep. Okay. I've just got that on the boat in case I get Oops. a bit hungry. That was a generous splash. And you're chopping up a bit Some of parsley. Some parsley there now. Yep. Okay. That in there. And I'll get you to break off a couple of cloves of garlic for me. Joe. Yep, just mix it around like that. So we put the salt and the pepper in. Joe, everything's yep. in there. So in yeah. this we've got um, honey, sweet chilli, garlic, pepper, salt, Parsley, lemon juice, yep. olive oil. Yep. Okay. So now the barbecue. So we can see this now, Joe. You can see, but it's extremely hot here now. Okay. Oh, that smell. And you, as soon as you get in there, the garlic mm. and all that. So you're just leaving them on there, and sorry. In a very short time, we'll see them starting to restrict from their shell. You'll see it starting to pull in okay. when it's getting hotter. Yep, just and that means they need flipping or? Just move those into the middle of the little bit. Yeah, that's it. Look. So you want it entirely cooked? Well, what's happening, that's cooking That's cooking inside that shell. Yeah. So they've been cooking for what? Yeah, not, not long, yeah. Not long at all. Okay. Yeah. So take it off or not? Yeah, I reckon. And you should be able to just grab that and just peel it out from the middle. So grab, grab one of these? Yep. Yeah. yeah, and, and then push it out from push the middle. Push it out, yep. And that's it like that. Well, that is really good. Mm. And it's simple and it's mm. easy. Mm. It's really good. Yeah. And so, leaving it to marinade, you just get those flavours You just get the, bit, the, the sweet chilli will go through it and the garlic mm -hmm. and the um, and especially the pepper. I can taste the flavours, but also that salt of the ocean. Yeah. Well, that's the same. When we boil our craze, we'll just go down to the edge of the island and fill up the bucket full of salt water. And you can't... You can't compare a ball cray in salt water, then you can add as much salt as you want, it's never the same, yeah. I don't reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Get that taste of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. That is so good. Just buy one or two and you buy them fresh off the boat. You can't you can't go wrong. That's gonna give you a lot of leeway of what it's gonna taste like. Geraldton based crayfisher Justin Piratina with Chef Joe. Joe Prendergast, that story produced by Chris Lewis. Eight minutes.
to 1. And to the markets, to Mount Barker now for the results of the two-day cattle market. Yesterday, the wieners went under the hammer. Today was the trade sale. Tracy Kilner, let's start with the wieners. A total of 1,966 excellent quality wiener calves at Mount Barker. Heavy steers were in demand with weights over 380 kilos selling to 270 cents, while the weights over 330 kilos topped at 274 cents. 300 kilo steers topped the sale at 300 cents a kilo. Buyers were chasing medium and lightweight heifers for feeders, future breeders and export. Competition on these weights pushed prices to 250 cents that was up 30 cents on last week. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 230 to 270 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 212 to 274 cents. Lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 238 to 300 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 208 to 296 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos sold for 156 to 198 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 made 180 to 244. Lighter weights between 280 to 330 kilos made 146 to 250 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 118 to 248 cents a kilo. Today's trade sale included 170 PTIC Angus heifers. They were all AI synced to calve early March and sold to from $1,550 to $2,300 a head. Cows dominated the trade sale with heavy lines gaining to sell to $140 cents a kilo. Bullocks weighing over 600 kilos made from 116 to 192. The 500 to 600 kilo weight steers made 172 to 196 cents. Grind heifers weighing under 540 kilos sold from 154 to 180. And the heavier weight heifers made 142 to 164 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold from 100 to 140 cents. Medium weights from 100 to 120. And store cows were in demand with processors paying up to 108 cents. And feeder and restocker buyers picked up lines from 60 to 120 cents a kilo. PTIC mixed aged cows sold from 110 to 146 cents a kilo and heavy bulls made from 80 to 154 cents. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details. Six minutes to one. On the text, Whitebait is asking Did anyone else see the falling object burn up in the sky out over quarter way as viewed from Darren at about? 11.56 this morning. Did you? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Let me know on the text. Thank you for that white bait. The wool market was up this week. The eastern market indicator up 35 cents to finish at 1,212 cents a kilogram clean. And the western market indicator up 38 cents to close at 1,343 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what a great way to end this year's wool sales. A very good, very good week in wool over the two days in Fremantle. 17 micron lifted 50 cents clean to close at 18.80. That was on top of the dollar 40 we've seen over the previous three weeks. So a great result at that end of the at the that end of the micron range. 18 microns also up 50 to close at 16.30. 19's up 50, just shy of $15, 14.95 on the close. 20 microns up 40, 21's up 40, 22's up 40, closing at 13.95, 13.75 and 13.25. And if I just quote the AWEX report for the week, 
in US dollar terms, the 20 cent rise was the largest daily rise in the Eastern market indicator since this time last year. So very good result on the first day. Pieces and bellies went in unison with their combing friends and the fleece wool finds up 50, mediums up 40. That was a very positive result. As I often say, it's good to see all those combing wools moving in the one direction. Oddments, locks up 10. That was the big star over the two days in Fremantle. Stains, crutchings fully firm, lambs fully firm, albeit at a lower level for the shorter ones. Longer lambs, 40 to 50 mils, still in some very good territory. The last day was operating in Melbourne on its own. That was on the Thursday. The market did soften slightly, probably seeing falls of 10 to 15 cents over all of those micron brackets. But in all, a very good result for Fremantle. And Danny, is this normal that the last wool sale of the year sort of goes out with a bang like this? It all depends on the Chinese New Year and that date moves every year in their calendar. So it's more around the shipping getting wool out of this country prior to the recess. We now walk into a three-week recess. So we did see that happen, as I said, uh, just before this time last year. But um, as with the wool market, nothing ever stays the same forever. All right. So who was buying this week? A uh, very, very positive um, tech wool trading taking 19.5% of merino fleece wool across the country. TNU, 15.5%. PJ Morris, 14.5%. And Endeavour Wool Exports taking just shy of 12%. So a very good market in the fleece wool, well spread. And I will say that the export is sitting underneath those top four buys would have roughly taken 9 to 10% of the market as well. So very strong competition. If we look at tech wool trading, as I mention every week, and it is worth mentioning, second largest buyers in the crossbred market, second largest buyer in the augment market, and the largest buyer in the skirtings market. So again, a market driven and dominated by tech wool, but um, that's certainly very good to see in that top four. Danny, this is the last sales week of the year, as we've already mentioned. So if we look ahead, I mean, what what do we expect? Is this sort of... A uh, great result for wool growers this week. Continue at the start of, you know, when sales resume next year or how are you reading it? Well, sales will commence second week in January. I think that is Monday the 8th. Um, they will recommence on that uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. I suspect as we see every year at that time of year, a very large offering, roughly probably 50,000 bars or more. But um, that doesn't seem to concern the market too much as we open up, as we've had three weeks with our wool sale. So I think these exporters will be keen to come back into the market, regain some position in their stock position and also fill their orders for overseas or start those orders. So the first couple of weeks of January, um, at this stage, all indications point um, to a reasonable open. And how would you wrap up the week? I mean, in, in a sentence, uh, uh, not, not the week, the year of wool sales. What, what would you say? It's the same as every year, Bell. Ups and downs through the year. You take advantage of the ups and you try and stay away from the downs. But it's just been a typical wool market that we've seen year in, year out. But what is always a very strong positive is finishing um, finishing the, the calendar year on a high because that allows us to trade wool outside the market over the next three weeks at very good levels. Danny, good to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, to all the listeners, Bill, um, happy Christmas and I hope you have a great new year. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.